It's the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. My name's Matthew, and on this episode, I've got a lovely chat with John Treadaway, who is the editor of Miniature War Games magazine. Yeah, I am the editor of Miniature War Games magazine. I have been now for, I suppose, rapidly approaching seven years. I was just doing that by counting the, uh, the volumes of back issues in front of me. Yes, I think, <laughs> I think it's seven years. I think I started at issue 403, and we're currently on working on issue 477. So I, I want to kind of dive in a wee bit uh, to your career in that and find out how you, you came to be in this position. But first up, a kind of burning question for you, if we might call it that. Uh, if we go back sort of 10 or 20 years and, and you know, the, when the internet really came into popular culture and one of the things that you did hear a lot were you know things like magazines print publications they will die away and when we look now at, at certain magazines you know there's really a period of niche magazines thriving why do you think the print publication is, is still very much a thing in certain circles i think there's a number of reasons for that and i think it depends on the audience and i think it depends on the subject matter. I mean, I've now been writing for print magazines uh, for uh, 40 something years. Um, I mean, wargaming print magazines and stuff. I think it's fair to say that they appeal to people on quite a broad spectrum of tastes in terms of their demographics. Um, when I took the job, one of the things I said to the person at the magazine headquarters when I sort of, you know, said, would you consider me for the role? And I sent them my CV. And one of the things I emphasised, I suppose, on my CV was that I'd spent probably two decades working carefully on the salute show um, and being very heavily involved in that. And my attitude was that I wanted to reproduce in the magazine the kind of audience that Salute had. Because um, I think the whole point of a magazine is that it covers a broad church. Um, people will always bitch and moan, always, and say, well, there was nothing in it for me this month, or there was nothing that I'm particularly interested in this week, or whatever, in any periodical publication. And the answer to that is because it's not a book. It's that, you know, you haven't gone out and bought yourself an Osprey book or bought yourself a, a something on a specific subject you're interested in. You're buying a magazine, and as such, it will cover a range of topics, and it's meant to make you go, oh, I hadn't thought of that, or, oh, oh, oh that's interesting, or, or no, it's not. And for me, that's what Sloop was always about. Um... You know, I was in the luxurious position of, as I say, helping run the show at its height where you're looking at, I think on our best days, I think we had seven or 8,000 people in the building. And every year people would complain there were too many this games or too many fantasy games or too many trader games or too many something games. And the reality is that you have a big, broad spread of things. So... Bringing that back to magazines, my attitude was very much, that's what you have to do with a magazine. 
one of the things that comes with that, I think, is that your audience is not all one specific bunch of people. You know, you're not, uh, how can I put it? You're not aiming it at one particular small, slicey demographic. You're trying to cover people from probably, you know, when I started reading Wargames magazines in my mid-teens to people in their 60s and 70s. Um, the last word I had in last month's issue covered um, a guy called Jack uh, Alexander, who is still making figures at 93. He'd started Jack Lex as a, as a business and still casts him in his kitchen. You've got this huge, broad selection of people. And some people will want to read it on their phone, and some people will want to read it on a tablet, and some people will want to read it on the toilet in a magazine when they sit there. And I think that the advantage of a print magazine that you can cover all those bases and you can you can produce the thing as a PDF for those that want it or an ebook of some sort or whatever and you can produce it as extracts from that on websites and so on and so forth but it's it's about coordinating all of that I think about making sure that you've got a selection of both print and electronic versions when I was young people used to say we'll move towards the paper Sorry. We'll move towards the paperless office. And of course, we never got a paperless office. What we got was an office with more paper, but with the electronic stuff as well. And I think that it's, you know, there's a bunch of guys and girls at Warner's headquarters uh, where they publish the magazine that know how to make sure that those electronic, for want of a better phrase, and internet-based components are fully serviced at the same time. So, yeah, it becomes a juggling act, a, a plate spinning act, to trying to keep all the plates in the air at once. Um, I don't know exactly what the split is on the magazine at the moment, how many people get it as an electronic version and how many people get it as print, but there's still a very healthy number of people that still get it as print. This might be anecdotal, but, uh, you know, if I'm in say wh smith you know a shop here in britain and looking at the magazines yeah. so you've got your own magazine and white dwarf you know the, these sort of magazines in our own hobby and it's curious that a lot of the magazines you see are, are very tangible they're about very tangible subjects so for example a lot of sort of knitting based magazines cooking sports these are these are things that people like to do in the real world, in the physical world. So I wonder if it's, if it's a coincidence that these people also like to get their hands on something physical when it comes to consuming content as well, for for example, a magazine, you know, rather than just looking at something on their phone. Do you think there's something in that? I think there is. Um, I think that um, a conversation I've had with the, the people at HQ um is the difference between miniature war games and tabletop gaming. Um, tabletop gaming is first and foremost a board gaming magazine that strays occasionally into miniatures. Um, and I was explaining to somebody that um, every 
every war gamer I know, without exception, plays board games. You know, maybe uh, it's too much effort one night to get the toys out. Maybe they're just uh, short of time. And getting a board game out, you can get some stuff out and put it on the table, and that's great. But that's not a reverse slope. So all the board gamers I know, and people who identify as board gamers, they're not closet war gamers. You get the occasional one. But mostly you speak to a board gamer and say, do you play any war games? And they'll say, what, you mean like Dungeons and Dragons? Or, oh, I used to play some Warhammer when I was at university. Um, and mostly what they're not interested in is the crafting element. Um, every war gamer I know, when they get a board game out, their first question is to look at it and think, how can I make this more crafty? How can I build something to do this with? How can I reproduce this and paint all the figures? It's that kind of element. And so I think that, um, I think the desire to craft and build scenery and paint miniatures is fundamental to wargaming in a way it isn't to say board gaming. Um, and you're not just consuming product. You're not reading a copy of, I don't know. Um, if you go into WH Swiss and you buy a copy of Staff or something, and you're looking at the latest phones or the latest uh, whatever, computers and laptops and things, you're not doing anything. You're you're using it as a catalogue and you're reading reviews and you're you're experiencing, I suppose, vicariously buying things that you maybe are or maybe not going to buy, but you're not actually doing anything. So you can read that on your phone. Um, but I think that people who like to build things and like to paint things, like, as you said, they have a physical component. In the real world, it would be, as you say, knitting or gardening. Um, but in certainly gaming world, it's the desire to craft scenery. You know, one of the joys I used to have going to shows was going around and just looking at the things people had constructed. Um, and I think that's, it's not unique for wargaming. It's the same, I would guess, for modern railways and stuff like that. But it's an interesting thing that with modern railways, you tend to build things and then the trains go round and round. But with the wargaming, there's this social interaction. There's, there's arguments. There's, there's going through scenarios. There's all the other elements as well. So I think that probably has something to do with it. But I don't know. You touched on your, your sister publication there. It's tabletop. Tabletop gaming, isn't it? That's what it's called. Yeah, the other magazine. So, what a what what magazine came first then? Well, miniature war games has existed for four hundred and seventy-seven issues. Uh, that's existed since it was started by now the now late Duncan McFarlane in the Christ. Um, I'm guessing nineteen seventies, the late nineteen seventies. Certainly no, no earlier than the early 1980s. Yeah, maybe early 80s. Um, and that's passed through several publishers and several editors to get to the position it's in now. Um, they started, table, Warner's started Tabletop Gaming around the same time as they effectively bought 
miniature war games from the previous publisher. Um, so I think Tabletop Gaming as a magazine is probably uh, is probably only eight years old, seven or eight years old, I would think. Mm. Do you have anything to do with that or not a work basis or are you exclusively with miniature yeah, board games? I, I, I have enough to do with just miniature war games. Mm. Um, also, I mean, I, I'm actually, technically speaking, a freelancer. I mean, I've been in the job eight years, seven years, whatever, but technically speaking, I'm still a freelancer. Um, and have been a freelancer for all the writing I've ever done. So how did how did you get started in writing then? And, and was that immediately writing within the hobby or did you write in another medium and then be able to merge that with your hobby to, to make the, cre- the career that you've got today? When I started uh, writing for a magazine called Military Modelling, um, which I'm not sure still exists, I'd have to check, but certainly in my youth was for a time at least the only magazine that covered anything to do with wargaming as a hobby. Um, the publishers originally had a second title called Battle for Wargamers, but that only lasted a couple of years because he couldn't get the advertising. And so it folded and some of those components Fold, were folded into military, uh, military modelling. Um, so in the early 80s, military modelling was a magazine that mostly dealt with painting static figures uh, in a very nice professional slick kind of way and had a couple of columns in it that were wargaming orientated that were usually begrudged by the... Uh, the fine figure modelers because they saw it as a an extra input into their magazine and somehow via a connection that i now genuinely cannot remember because it's over 40 years ago i was contacted to write something for it for a fantasy article um i think they were doing a christmas special of some sort and um i you know, back in the days of typewriters, I could I delivered and did this a couple of times. And obviously then, you know, you get a reputation of being asked to do something and then being able to deliver it. And one of the things I've always prided myself on is if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. Um, and so anyway, they had a column in military modelling, which the guy who was the columnist did it said, I'm going to stop doing this. And... I wrote to the editor in a, the sort of precocious way that 23-year-olds do and said, I think what you need is a column every month on fantasy war roaming. And he said, yeah, okay, which I was quite surprised by. And I started doing reviews um, of product. And at that point, Games Workshop were quite new and quite, you know, um, unheard of so they got you know some promotion out of it and things um and there were you know lots of other burgeoning manufacturers starting up um and then after a couple of years of that they said we're going to actually split off again and do another wargaming magazine called practical wargamer and we're going to move your column into that 
And so I said, oh, okay. And all through the 80s through to the early 90s, I wrote for Practical Wargamer and I was the staff photographer as well. Um, and then after, I think, nine years, got sick of it and just said, okay, I'm going to stop. But I still used to write occasionally for magazines because of being involved with open day shows, specifically Salute. Um, and so every year we would have a, um, we would have a, we, we did a deal with, with what was then a new magazine, which was Miniature Warland. We did a deal with the then editor um, that we would produce a program within the pages of the magazine so that every month, every year on that month, there'd be like an extra 16 pages in the magazine which we could get an overprint on and get pulled out as our program. And so I wrote for that on a regular basis, once a year sort of thing, just to keep my hand in. Plus in my real world job, um, I was writing for and editing um, a, a magazine in a work capacity um, on um, not a terribly interesting subject, social services in particular. Um, and so it, it carried on along those lines, really. So I've, I've written for various things over the years. Um, not all of it hobby-related, but most of it hobby-related, I suppose. What are some of the, the things you think about when, when it comes to creating a piece of content like an article? Are there, are there certain ethos you have or certain things you put in place, certain things you're looking to do? each time you, you publish an article or a column or anything like that? In an ideal world, it has to be something that gives you something to take away and try. Um, it has to be something that's inspiring. It has to be something that's well-written. Um, it has to be something that is thoughtful or evocative. But I'd also quite like unicorns and rainbows. So um, I'm looking for something that is a combination of those as much as possible. Um, I suppose the most important thing for me is that it's well written and well illustrated um, and gives people something that they can take away. Everything else is, is chrome. For example, there's only so many ways you can rewrite certain events of World War Two. for example. You know, what we don't need is another article on Market Garden, if you see what I mean. Um, or, oh, I don't know, um, another article on perhaps um, the Little Beacon, if it was if it was American, it blames Indian wars. Because, you know, they tend to have been done to death a bit. But if they've got a new wrinkle, they've got a new approach, then that's always interesting. What are the, some of the frequently heard complaints or gripes that you get, if any? The, the usual gripes are always, um, there's too much of something I don't like in the magazine. Um, classically, um, they are, there's too much fantasy in the magazine. 
uh, too many gnomes and fairies, um, which I thought was an interesting phrase. Um, that's an actual quote. Um, it's difficult. Um, the, the, when I first started wargaming, it was just on the beginning of the of the wave of, I suppose, fantasy wargaming. Um, up until then, certainly people had presented that they didn't play fantasy wargaming. And when I say pretended, I would argue that all wargaming, unless you're doing some bizarre reproduction of an actual battle, going through it, actually as they fought it, is a fantasy of some sort, because the ending will be different. You know, I remember, just to go off in one direction, whenever you're... I've done various interviews with the press over the years, and, you know, the... I don't know, I suppose the journalists are always desperately trying to look for a hook question to try and, you know, get something that they're doing. Um, <clears throat> so they'll always ask you questions about what you do, and I always start off with talking about playing with toy soldiers, and they often then say, I'm surprised you say toy soldiers, to which I say, well, at some point you're going to say toy soldiers, so I figure if I get in first, you can't beat me with it. But they'll ask me questions, and the classic one is, do you ever get to play important battles, or you know, reproduce battles, and I'll say, occasionally, do you get to play the Battle of Waterloo, they say, because it's the only one they can think of, and you say, occasionally. And they say, thinking it's the most cunningest, you know, blackadder question you can think of, is, does Napoleon get to win? The answer is, it depends how he throws his dice and whether he's any good. Um, but the concept that everything you do is a fantasy, everything you're doing is is not real, is hard for, I don't know, some wargamers to get their heads around. Uh, and especially if they are players that have been playing purely historical games for a long time. And so, yeah, the biggest bitch that I get is inevitably... Um, there's too much fantasy in it, or there's too much science fiction in it. Did you read it? No, I'm not interested in that. You say, well, okay then. Um, one of the things that I encourage writers to do when they do scenarios is to give alternative settings for it. Um, I did a article a few couple of years back which was based on um, a 17th century scenario called Siege Train, which was to do with attacking a siege train as it crosses a bridge. And I then reinterpreted it as a science fiction one. And it's the same scenario. And I ran through both of them in the same article. Um, and it was an attempt to show that even if you think this scenario isn't for you, Here's an idea. Try reading it a little bit and seeing where you get. But there are people who are genuinely just not interested in that. And perhaps magazines are not for them, perhaps, because they can't control what it is they're reading. But that's the biggest complaint I get. What do you attribute that to when, when you come across, you know, the, the odd um person who's pre predominantly into the historical war game and then they, they have a strong dislike for fantasy or sci-fi why why do you think that is 
I think there's a number of reasons. I think um, I think we all want to be taken seriously in our hobby. I don't mean deadly serious, but I mean nobody likes to be mocked. And we all probably have limits that even if we don't set them out ourselves, are probably still there. So, for example, I found it very difficult to watch a game being played with people playing a game with Lego, where they played a war game and the individual figures were all made of Lego. And when they got shot, they pulled a bit of the Lego off. Now, there's no particular reason for me to dislike that or be prejudiced against it, except that on some level, it takes what I do even less seriously than playing it with gnomes and fairies or, or Lord of the Rings or, or, or science fiction ray guns or something. Um, so I guess everybody has a different tolerance level for what they're prepared to accept. Eats away at the, at the uh, sandy foundations of what we think of as our much-treasured hobby. And I think that people who have spent, especially if they've spent years researching a particular thing, get quite antsy about the fact that you don't have to do that. I was once told by somebody, oh, I do love science fiction games with all that research you don't have to do. And then you meet somebody, oh, I don't know, who's running a Star Trek game or something and has spent years going through television shows and books on the subject and, and uh, reference material, all of which is, you know, far above the collection I've got, assembling something to, to produce a, an article or a war game based on Star Trek. And that's research, whether it's research into something that's real or not, or appreciated or not, it's still research, it's still the same act. You get books out, you pound them, you make notes, you collect the notes, you make a game out of it or something or an article. It's still the same process, but it's not real. Yeah, okay. I think it eats away at people's, like I said, already quite shaky foundations because everybody at some point will have been told that you're just playing with two soldiers then. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it seems almost sillier when you're like, you know, here's my um I don't know, my orc chief compared to, you know, here's my World War Two Allied force. <laughs> There's maybe just that step too far for some folk that they do feel a bit silly. Um very much so. What I find interesting is the number of ex serving soldiers, ex serving service people who I know that, for example, won't play actual games that involve actual combat, but are happy to play fantasy games because it doesn't bring back whatever it is that's rattling around inside their poor brains. And I, I know a couple of people who have said to me exactly that, no, I don't do gaming, I don't do historical gaming because that's not where I want to be. And I think for people who, especially people who haven't got any actual active service, 
that are denying those people a gaming outlet, as it were, by saying, well, it's too much, this, that, and the other. And if it's not your taste, there's, there's a gazillion fields of interest in wargaming that really leave me cold. Um, but I don't begrudge other people choosing them as their chosen field. Did you know that, just like every other podcast out there, this show has its very own Patreon? But this is no ordinary Patreon. It's actually the worst Patreon ever. That's right, there's no rewards, no extras, no bonus content, no early access, no shout-outs, and no thank yous. I'll just take the money and quietly get on with making the show. Not that there's any money to take, because hardly anyone's pledging to the thing. Like I say, it's the worst Patreon ever. Find it at bedroombattlefields.com slash worst Patreon ever. That's all one word, worst Patreon ever. Now, back to the show. I want to talk a wee bit, John, about your favourite genres and, and gaming systems and that, but first up, I'm, I'm curious just to, to get a surface-level understanding of what what it takes to put a magazine together, a regular magazine together, where you're getting the content from and what kind of what kind of goes into getting that um, on the shelves for us? Well, um, the answer to that is um, a stable of people who want to see their work in print, um, who um, are good at doing what they say they're going to do, the ability to tie up people's written words with sometimes other people's um, photographic or illustrative work Uh, because, you know, there's a number of people that can write and can't paint or can paint and can't take a photograph or can do both of those and can't put pen to paper. And it's about again, trying to get that particular three-ring circus together so that you've got all of those in the same place at the same time. Um, The ability to plan things, you know, a month or two ahead. Um, The ability to, um, yeah, cultivate and curate a group of people that want to move forward and write. Um, and in my case, to be in the fortunate position of applying for the job and getting it um, with a track record that said I could do it. Going back to yourself then and, and you know, your interests personally and, and the hobby world. So what um, you've talked about the, the, the fantasy genre already. What sort of genres and gaming systems really interest you these days? Good question. Um One of the disadvantages of making your hobby your job is that uh, you find, I found, it becomes harder sometimes to mobilise and galvanise your interest in your hobby um, just because it becomes more of the daily grind. Um, I wrote a set of rules about, well, Slightly over a dozen years ago, the last set was a dozen years ago. Um, do I play on a regular basis? Um, I quite enjoy writing and developing rules, 
rather than necessarily playing other people's, um, which makes me somewhat of a a failure on the uh, commercial front, if you see what I mean, because I'm I'm not necessarily a target audience. But having said that, I think most wargamers I know quite like fiddling with rule sets and trying things out. Um, but perhaps that's just the company I keep. I'm not a competition wargamer in the slightest, so I've never been a person to amass armies that look as if they're going to do well in competition and fiddle with them to get the stats right and so on and so forth. So, for example, um, the whole of the current Games Workshop 40k competitions and now Age of Sigma competitions and so on and so forth is something that has no interest for me at all. Just because I'm not really interested in competition wargaming. I much prefer pleasant, um, fun, occasionally cooperative wargaming. So, yeah, I mean, I've, my period interests are really, um, I suppose, modern combat right back to the Second World War. Depends on your definition of modern, I guess. And I suppose a degree of ancients combat, um, although I'm still looking for a set of rules that really massively appeals, and some science fiction, and I'm a, a terrible Nazi on the subject of fantasy war game because I generally only tend to like one thing, which is probably um, Lord of the Rings, very little else. Is that the, the Games Workshop version of that, or is there another sort of version that you're playing of that? I tend to play other people's versions. Um, I've played the Games Workshop version. It's okay. I'm, yeah, I, I, I have bugaboos with it. I have similar issues with some of the figures uh, in the same way. I, have, I mean, some of them are lovely, some of the original Perry miniatures. Um, Perry Twins sculpts are lovely um, but then they were working within the constraints of the film material from 20 years ago which I'm not a big fan of um, but nevertheless it's you know it was always my my first laugh when it came to, to miniatures for non-historical stuff uh, in the same way that uh, Ancients was my first love historical stuff, Ancients of World War II. Um, and I guess I haven't changed much in that respect. Um, it's been a long while, but I've, you know, I've played quite a few Star Trek games over the years, in, in my years. Uh, I mean, ship games. Um, used to play quite a lot of the games with Starfleet Battles, which um, started off as a very nice little pocket game that you could just buy counters and play on a tabletop. And after years again, of it being turned into a competition game by the American audience that wrote it, turned into something that came in a three-ring binder that you could stun an ox with. And I rapidly lost interest because it became just too hideously legalese and complicated. Um... I'm not a big fan of massively complex rule sets. 
Um, I think that, you know, largely what misses the point, if every time you want to do something interesting, you have to say, give me a second, I just need to look this up. Uh, you know, if you've got a set of rules and it stretches too much beyond 20 or 30 pages, you've probably done something wrong in my books. Do you get much time to, to game or paint, given that, like you say, you know, your your day job is the hobby, so what, what does that sort of look I, like? I have the advantage of the fact that I have a, a cabin in my garden. Um, unfortunately, I'm not very well at the moment, but up until recently, I've been, you know, gaming in the cabin in my garden, um, which has the advantage of, you know, I'm in a luxurious position. I can leave a table up and just play, you know, pop down and carry on playing the game when I want to. Um, and that's not something up until six, seven years ago I had. So I'm, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Um, what is that game that you're playing at the moment then? At the moment, I've got two tables set up in the game. Um, one of them is the game I wrote, which is... Um, a game called Hammer's Slammers, which is a science fiction uh, game written by a guy called Dave Drake, um, who is a relatively well-known author in the States, who I've met a couple of times. Um, Dave is a Vietnam vet, and he dealt with his issues leaving the Vietnam War by writing about it in a way that, I mean, in 19, the 1970s, nobody was interested in producing books about the Vietnam War for obvious reasons. And so he wrote science fiction books and changed the names to get them published, as it were. And certainly the early works that he wrote are direct lifts from some of his experiences, uh, but done in a science fiction style and amongst... Um, sort of hard science fiction books that are highly thought of and yeah, produced a set of rules to go with those and there's a range of figures out from one of the manufacturers and yeah, I mean they are fairly straightforward and fairly I would argue interesting if you're interested in something which is a weird 1960s, 1970s science fiction translated to people on another planet. Um, but like all these things, you know, it's it's like um, when one looks at 40k and you ask why all these people marching forward carrying chainsaws, you know, and, you know, why have all the tanks got, why do they all look like First World War tanks and and, you know, there's reasons for it given in the rules, and you think, oh, okay, and you either accept that or you don't. Um, the same with David Drake's work, you know, that you ask why isn't, why aren't there spaceships doing this, and why aren't there aircraft doing that, and his answer is all in the writing, but his real answer, of course, is that's not what it was like in Vietnam. And so, mm. as I say, it is almost a the early stuff is almost like a search and replace Vietnam story. Um, but it lends itself to what I would call hard, gritty, unpleasant science fiction with very little shouting death to the emperor and things. Um, and that works for me 
I suppose it it makes it easier for me to translate it into my brain as a sort of as a realistic science fiction, if you see what I mean. Are you you painting anything at the moment? Do you get much painting done? I'm not painting anything at this instant. Uh, I get some painting done. Mostly it's more forces for my 15mm hammers and slammers stuff, I'll confess, if you know, if I run out of time to paint things. Uh, the last thing I painted was some, um, I did a test on some samples I was sent by Wargames Atlantic, which was some of their, um, I'm trying to think what they're called, the, uh, the British Bulldogs, I think they're called, which are um, chaps in pith helmets. The red coats carry ray guns, as it were, um, and they are designed to sort of hit a button that I think Guns Workshop used to produce a range of figures like them called Praetorians, which they stopped producing a few years ago. I think they, they fell off the end of one of their codexes, and so consequently nobody produces them anymore. And they produced a box of plastics that people can build their own, and I wanted to to put something together and try them out. I wanted to try out some of the um, the uh, speed paints from Marmy Painter as part of a review. And, yeah, it was just a, an opportunity to paint half a dozen figures and try some paint out. Great stuff. I uh, really enjoyed that chat with John. Lovely guy and a fantastic magazine too. I've been subscribed to it now for, I think, four months. I think I've got about four additions through the door and uh, it's always a nice wee treat when it pops through the door you know you're, you're not really expecting it and you could uh, just sit down with a coffee and, and dive into all the, the various diverse articles that are in there like John's saying you know you're always going to get that's just the nature of magazines you'll get the odd thing that you're not overly interested in I talk a lot about um, how I'm not overly interested in the historical stuff but I still find there's value in uh, reading through it and you know it's at very least looking at the, the the lovely pictures that accompany these articles too so thoroughly recommend that miniature war games magazine um, elsewhere in my hobby life I'm uh, not going to do too much on this just a, a brief update on what I've been doing recently, uh, I published a post on the blog at bedroombattlefields.com with pictures of my wolves that I'd finished up for Rangers of Shadow Deep Blood Moon and Touchwood. We're hoping to get a game of that. Time of recording, it's mid-November. We're hoping to get a game of that, me and Robert, before the end of the month. So if the stars align, if the full moon comes out, we'll be doing that and we'll, of course, bring our usual battle report for you, if you could call it that, on the podcast and I'll get some pictures of the event too. So yeah, really looking forward to that scenario. It's been a long time coming and uh, hopefully we're, we're just about to get there and, and get playing with it. I've been dabbling with some plague bearers. I've been trying to been trying to come up with a colour scheme here that I'm happy with for my plague bearers of Nurgle. I'm going to make a wee Nurgle warband. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast too. And I've just been really dabbling and experimenting with, with what sort of colours I want them to look, uh, dealing with their, their sort of flesh at this point in time. So I've been trying uh, black undercoats and dry brushing. I've got some of the the old Citadel paints, which I, I said before that I've not been using, but I cracked a couple of them open. Um, was it pale? pale flesh and bleached bone. I was doing a kind of dry brush over dark undercoats. I tried a brown undercoat as well. 
Um, and then I was going over the top with contrast paints. I, I'm always using skeleton hoard, so I, I stuck that on. Um, and I tried with a couple other ones too. I think I tried with one of the flesh tones. I actually used Plague Bearer Flesh, I think it's called, uh, as well on one of them. And the feedback on the, the Discord channel when I put the photos up, you know, people are basically saying, go and just get on with it now. <laughs> You've messed about long enough with this planning. Um, but the feedback was that maybe uniformity in a, in a warband like this isn't really the answer. I suppose it'd be different if you were ranking up a full unit of them, like, like a block of troops. But the fact that this is a warband, a skirmish warband, it might benefit from them being slightly different colours to one another, it might add a bit more character, um, especially, you know, given the nature of the, the Nurgle demons and stuff like that, they are all just, you know, rotten bags of pus, there's, there's probably, um, you know, there's there's less reason for them to look exactly the same anyway, isn't there? So I think there's a lot of value in that, so yeah, I, I think with my Plague Bearers, I'm going to just mix and match it up a wee bit and give them a wee bit of variety in their colours. And I'm also, I think I'm going to get back out all these 6mm miniatures that I've got. I've still got a lot of unpainted 6mm regiments and I'm really interested in getting them back out and, and getting back to them because I quite like the thought of having a game in 6mm. I've done it before, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I've got these great wee miniatures here uh, from Bacchus and... Uh, I just need to get cracked on and get them finished. You know, I've got six mil scenery, I've got little roads, I've got rivers, bridges and stuff like that. So I really quite fancy a wee game like this sometime soon. So I think I'll do just that. Final thing on books. I noticed there was, uh, I'm probably well behind the times on this, but I noticed that there was a couple of books about to be released that might be of interest to you. The first one is by Ian Livingston himself. It's called Dice Men, The Origin Story of Games Workshop. And uh, that's to be released on the 10th of November. Time of recording, it's the 15th of November. I think it's out by now. But I, I, I reckon I'll um, put that on my Christmas list. That could be something that I could uh, wake up to on Christmas Day if Santa's going to be good to me, if I've, if I've behaved myself this year, which hopefully I have. So uh, Dice Men, yeah. Ian Livingston with Steve Jackson. Great little retro cover on it as well. So I am really looking forward to reading through that one. But another one that caught my eye as well on Amazon... Uh, I knew nothing about this at all. Grimdark, A Very British Hell. This is by Tim Linward. And uh, let me just have a wee look at the blurb here. So Grimdark, the, the, on the book cover, Grimdark, the title, is actually in the, the Games Workshop lettering. And in the blurb here it says, uh, Grimdark examines Warhammer 40k's place and impact in pop culture and how this unique version of a hellish future arose from the subconscious of post-industrial Britain. Uh, that comes out in April 2023, so a wee bit to go until that comes out, but um, I did reach out to the author to see if we could maybe uh, get him on in the near future and, and chat about that, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I dare say getting Ian Livingston on won't be won't be quite as realistic, that's no offence to Tim of course, but uh, I imagine uh, Ian Livingston is a, a popular guy when it comes to media appearances. But anyway, that's two books I thought might be interesting to you. Like I say, time of recording, it's mid-November, so maybe you are looking for something to, to stick on that wee Santa list, and if so, uh, there you go. With well, that said, right enough, you, you probably can't get the book that comes out in April for your Christmas, but um, elsewhere, I'm actually reading a couple of biographies. Uh, Napoleon, you know, not a fellow I know a great deal about, but um, I'm reading this massive biography of Napoleon and I'm also uh, going through one of Alexander the Great so two famous generals and 
yeah, purely out of interest. I really love history. I love to dive into this sort of stuff and I'm enjoying both of them uh, so far. So I've got one on audiobook. I've got the Napoleon one on audiobook. I'm going through that. It's like 36 hours. So it's going to take me a wee while to finish that one. Uh, and Alexander the Great book on him, uh, I've got on my Kindle at the moment as well. So I do a lot of reading. I've always got three or four books on the go at one time. So uh, yeah, that's what's that's what's kind of got my attention at the moment. So I think that's just about it for this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Uh, be sure to check out the website, bedroombattlefields.com. You'll find all the latest articles and pictures and that on there. I actually, I just published a... Uh, the, the conclusion to our November painting challenge that we had in our Discord channel and all the pictures of the miniatures that were done. Some really, really great miniatures, uh, great paintwork as well and a lot of very good names given to these characters. So you'll find pictures of the paint challenge uh, on the, the, the Discord server, bedroombattlefields.com forward slash Discord. And hopefully we'll do a new one of those in December. We'll see how things are. We'll see how things are looking for everyone. I know that it could be a busy time of the year, but maybe we could sandwich in a wee challenge where we just paint a single miniature and uh, you know I quite like the idea of doing something like that every other month I think to do it every every month it maybe lose its impact and uh, interest might wane a wee bit so uh, yeah be sure to head over to bedroombattlefields.com check out all those pictures uh, join the discord server itself of course bedroombattlefields.com slash discord and uh, get yourself a wee subscription to Miniature Wargames magazine whilst you're at it. If you've enjoyed this episode, it is a very good magazine and I thoroughly recommend it. Okay, that's everything for now. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch up again on the next one. Mm-hmm.